0: Good morning, you know for a Californian, um, I'm not really bothered by this weather, people keep asking me if I am, because there's two seasons in California, there's beach weather and then there's no beach weather, and no beach weather just means you dress warm anyway, so to me, we're just waiting for summer, so I'm all good. You don't like that, do you? Your fall and spring are really big here, I've come to appreciate that. Uh, I want to just talk as family, one of our mission statement about our church and who we are is that we're a community of families. And when I say families, uh, I'm not talking biological, the scriptures talk about us being uh, a spiritual family first. And so that's where a kind of collection of spiritual families that gather. Uh, But a few things just that I got to share with you, first of all, um, Ted and Marilyn Bassett-Jones I've been members here for quite some time. Ted was one of the early pastors of this church, still attends here. Um, He's not doing well. Um, He had a nine-day fever, and so um, he had to be intubated and kind of sedated last night. So if we could just be praying uh, for them, uh, that would be great. Also, the Klitschkas, I know Pete's here, um, and crazy, he was in a car accident that was very severe. Um, But his wife, Laura, is battling cancer, and uh, she also just needs prayer as um, some struggles there. And then the last, just and all these kind of hit, you know how they hit the crossroads of your life, and I'm sure there are other stories that you guys have in this room, but these are three that kind of hit me. I heard uh, another story this week of a a church that's local that um, the pastor um, had committed adultery, and that church is going to go through that journey. A couple things I thought when I heard that. One, uh, just the uh, immediate pain and ripple effect that that has uh, on a church body. And I just felt the weight of that. Uh, it was kind of like a blow to the stomach of just, oh gosh, you're kidding me. Um, and not that that sin is any different in God's eyes than any other sin, but that, that's um, one that violates trust on a lot of levels. Uh, the second part, I, just, I was just thinking of his family um, and himself. But it took me to a place for me to say, okay, as my wife and I were talking, where am I at? Uh, where is our church at? And scriptures talk often about us not getting so arrogant about how our lives are going that we don't forget that the evil one is really good at what he does. And your flesh is really powerful. And between those two things, that we should be guarding our own lives, not pointing fingers at people, but really guarding our own lives. And just felt like for us to just spend some time praying for uh, ourselves. Um, God's doing a lot of good stuff at community church, but friends, man, we need to be on guard because the evil one is out. And it caused me to think about what boundaries in my life do I need to kind of shore up. It's like Nehemiah walking the walls of the city of Jerusalem of saying, where, where are their weaknesses? What have I allowed into my life? And so, and I just, I think that and pray that this morning, and I don't wish any of these um, things on churches. Man, I just, I feel for the local church, and as you're going to hear today, Green Bay needs good churches. Um, our city's lost, and uh, I, I really hope and pray that God can use the brokenness um, with this specific church to to redeem and glorify himself again. So will you pray with me for a moment? Uh, Father, this morning we first just say that we glorify your name and give you praise and honor and glory. And forgive us, Father. Forgive me, Father, for our wandering ways and allowing weakness and allowing the flesh to sometimes rule our lives. Uh, Father, help us as Ezekiel talks about being watchmen, watching the walls of our own life. Not so worried about everybody else, but the, the walls of our own life. And God, might we lift up the prayer uh, for that church, for what's going on there, and God, that we guard our lives. I pray for Pete and Laura and the family, the Klitschka's father is there, working through uh, just the, the uncertainty of cancer and illness. And God, I pray peace into their lives as Pete is recovering and as Laura is working through that disease. And God, we pray that you would, your will would be the healer, but we don't know. And pray for Ted and Marilyn, Father, as Ted's struggling through um, his illness and just needs your hand of healing. God, might we see and recognize your glory as you have your hand in all those things. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we've been in a two-week series uh, called the Bible, and uh, very interesting. The overwhelming kind of response we've gotten about the Bible—it uh, should be kind of popular because that's what we teach from. But it's been uh, really great, and you've enjoyed the conversation around it. And it may be something we return to in the fall. Um, next week, Stuart Briscoe is going to be teaching here. Um, he is the founding pastor of Elmbrook Church, and there's several Brook churches now all throughout Milwaukee, but. He's from England, um, and if you like an English accent, you'll be glued. Um, I don't know what Stuart's talking about, but the caliber of his journey, uh, he's over 80 years old, I believe, um, and just a godly man. He'll be here teaching next week. Don't know what he's going to talk about, but I'm sure it's going to be from the Bible. How's that? Uh, Anyway, I'm kind of given that because what we've been feeling led to is to maybe usher a challenge for our church in the summer. And we're, we're more seriously looking at maybe walking through the book of John and teaching for eight to ten weeks through the book of John and challenging our church to read daily through the book of John. And that we would hold Wednesday evenings, maybe in the art center, to dialogue what you're reading. So not a message or worship, but just to unpack it. So those of you that are really selfish and go away to your cabins and lake houses on Sundays, um, we would have something for you maybe on Wednesdays. The first service laughed a lot about that, so I'm not sure <laughs> where. you were a little serious this morning. My dry humor. Uh, okay, so the Bible. Uh, one of the things that we've talked about for the last couple weeks, and uh, really for several weeks, even when we talk about the Holy Spirit, is our culture can become uh, very infected by, our, our spirituality can be very infected by culture and uh, there is the this is a deep well when we start talking about um, the Bible and our faith and one of the things that is safe to talk about that I would just encourage you to be okay about is philosophy Now I'm not up here saying that you should anchor your life on philosophy but to recognize that philosophers throughout the ages have shaped how you think about God and they have identified that culture and our world has shaped a lot of our religious thinking and, and where you're from, how your family grew up. All those things have shaped how you approach as we talk about truth. Now from Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, and they're, they're very weighty, and my wife completely warned me, do not go down that road. Don't People will fall asleep and leave, and we're going to try to just scratch the surface. But I Seldomly do this, but I'm going to say this this morning. Um, I'm really appreciating Tim Keller. Um, He is the pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church out of New York, really the hotbed of secular culture, and he's dealing with a lot of these issues, and he's probably the best I've seen from a biblical anchor, but bringing in uh, understanding philosophy and how it's kind of affected our culture. now, just note, I, I seldom say that stuff because someone will always look up, you know, are they a good teacher? And they'll find that one website that says he's Satan and he's the new antichrist. And I'm sure there's one about there out there about me. Um, but they're all over. But I would say that I have been very appreciative of his teaching and it's influenced me. And so I'm kind of just sharing that as a resource. But um, George Barna, he is a statistician and kind of a survey expert for several, several years. And one of the things he's done recently is called a cities study. And one of the surveys was, um, what are the most Bible-centered cities in the United States? And a list of one being the most Bible-centered city and 100 being the worst of what his list was, because there's more than 100 cities. Where do you think Madison, Wisconsin would fall in the list of one to 100? 99. Yeah, you think that? Um, in the list, they actually um, score 75th. There's some worse places. Um, where do you think Milwaukee falls? 92nd. So there's a pattern here moving north. As we move north, something is happening. Um, Green Bay doesn't fall anywhere on the top 100. Um, let me give you this stat. You're not, you're not <laughs> laughing anymore. Uh, of people that say they're Christian read their Bible in this city. It's very interesting, about 30% of people that claim to have faith in Christ, um, that would be Catholic and Protestant, read their Bible. Uh, Even, maybe even a more disturbing claim is that 87% of people that say they're Christ followers in this city say they're casual followers. Now, I say that this morning to kind of just throw this blanket uh, over maybe this conversation to, to understand that we have a problem, and it's, it's, it's been a problem for centuries, that when we r- mistake religion for relationship with Christ, we fall victim to having a very casual perspective about God and truth. That when we begin to operate as if that we can do things for God and have kind of a moral code that we think is religious and punching our card... Well, then we find ourselves becoming more religious than having a relationship with God. Now, this morning, my point isn't necessarily to be guilty or shame-based or, or guilt-driven, but this will expose some things, I think, of a difference of what we're teaching here this morning. Uh, Tim Keller talks about this quote. He says, religion is I obey so that, um, that I can be accepted. I've heard a lot of you, and, and this is not shaming you. You'll, you'll immediately say to me, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't been here in a couple of weeks, as if like I'm keeping score, or there's like this heavenly record of, of you attending community church. There's not. And when you understand the biblical perspective and the truth idea that the church is the gathering of people who worship God, friends, what we do here on a Sunday morning is not a performance. We don't do this music so that the youth, get all the youths all get excited about the rock and roll music. It's kind of a preparation because we, we're glorifying God. We want to be reminded of who he is and recognize his glory. And it's just creeds and music and scripture and fellowship. That's why we gather. But when we have religious perspective, we kind of punching the card. And so you might fall victim to thinking, well, I don't read enough and I, I'm not at church enough and I'm not involved enough. And there's this this cloud of guilt and shame. But it says when the gospel, the gospel is I'm accepted so I can obey. The gospel is a radical di- kind of offshoot. It's different. It's, it's not an offshoot. It's, it's a fork in the road, the difference between a relationship with God, that you understand that the cross was necessary so I no longer have to earn my way. Now, I want to obey, and the truth is exciting, and it's something that I'm leaning into. Now, this morning, I want to answer some basic questions about the scriptures. And again, this well is very deep, and I say that humbly because, friends, some of you in this room know way more than I do, especially in this area. And uh, I want you to know that there is a lot of research, and a lot of study, and a lot of historical accounts and stuff that I'm just Scratching the surface, my prayer is this morning it scratches enough of the surface to change your perspective. Because one of the things I keep hearing uh, about the Bible is, well, it's the same, isn't it? Isn't the same as all the other writings out there? And I want you to hear this morning that it's very different and very unique. In fact, the word you hear often is the word canon. The canon, uh, this word canon, comes from a word that means like rule. Or standard, and there uh, are many faiths and cults that have their own canon. That means their their rule by which their creed or their religion bases itself out of. You understand? So a book, a holy book. Uh, the canon, though, is a word that's in the Greek that's used, um, like really quickly here in Galatians 6:16, 6, um, and it's a couple other times. It says as. And as far as all who walk by this rule, or this canon, uh, peace and mercy upon them and upon the um, Israel of God. So, in other words, this is a a word that's used in scriptures, this idea of canon. We call our Bibles uh, an inspired book given to us, special revelation. that's given by God. We said to 40 different authors over a 1,500-year span, Old Testament, New Testament, That is a part of the canon, a standard, a rule, by which we anchor our entire faith. That's important for you to know. Now, there are other canons. Interesting to note, in our 39 Old Testament books, the Jewish uh, text, their Jewish writings, match our Old Testament exactly. Meaning, all the Jewish writings, now they have some other books, but they're not considered inspired canon books. Uh, the Old Testament, as far as the Jewish Bible, and ours are the same. Now, they group those a little bit differently, so the number of books is different. They may not do like First and Second Samuel or First and Second Chronicles. Um, and so that's agreed upon as inspired books uh, by God. Now, in Roman Catholicism, um, it's different. There in 1546, they, uh, they approved some books to go into the canon that are called the Apocrypha. And uh, there's some discussion about what Apocrypha means, but it basically means non-canon books, um, books that, were, that did not meet the same standard. Now, again, this morning, I'm, I'm working really hard not to guilt or shame anybody in that, but just to designate there's a difference in between a, a Bible we talk about that is a Protestant Bible, a canon Bible, versus a, a different set of scriptures that other faiths or sects would use. And so, Roman Catholicism would have Tobit and Judith and uh, one and two Maccabees, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, uh, Baruch. Uh, there's, there's a set of these books. Now, just so you understand, there's a lot of reasons why they were not included. In fact, if you find in when they begin to do the canon and understand which books were inspired, there were a lot of other writings There were a lot of other people writing about what was going on, and so there had to be a way, and there were some divisions going on. There were some divisions, especially after the death and resurrection of Christ, of who Jesus was and wasn't. And so there was this urgency, and I'll show you in a minute, in the 300s to try to say what was God-inspired and what was just some of man's ideas. That's an important distinction. And so the big distinction from the Apocrypha books was that most of them conflicted with our story of the Protestant um, Old and New Testament with this one factor and that was they teach salvation could come through works. It it was one of the one points that as I worked through all the different accounts of what would be different, the one was that you could be saved by works. Now understand as a Christ follower and a Christian in a Protestant sense, that's a big division. Now, we said the entire story of the Bible points to the person of Christ. We say that he died and rose again. We say that the entire story of Scripture points to that, to know that you can't do it, that religion doesn't work, and that you needed Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you've been saved by grace through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. In other words, God knew if it was about religion and comparing, we'd be a problem, and we've already have that problem. And so you notice that these books were left out for that big reason. Mormonism, um, they have additional books. Christian Science has a different, uh, different set of uh, books, and then Islam is the Koran. And so it's important to know there is a difference. Not all uh, holy writings all point to the same God. There is a difference and I want to make sure that that distinction's clear. And again, without shaming any one of those, but to understand the claim we have this morning about being Protestant Christians that follow the canon of the Scripture, it points to the person of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and it's how we're saved. So how do we get the, how do we get the Bible? Just a couple thoughts. And again, I'm scratching the surface. In A.D. 250, there was an undeniably some debate in regards to the Old Testament canon, um, nearly universal agreement though on the Hebrew Scripture. In other words, the Hebrew Scripture had kind of known these were the holy writings, these 39 books, and so there was a lot of assuredness in there as There were some other books trying to make their way in. You find in about 325 AD, Constantine the Great calls this first big council of Nicaea. Now there is some debate about how much of the Scripture was really canon there, was it some other pocket meetings and whatnot the important thing to know here is there was a collection of bishops and pastors from around the world that agreed of what was inspired by God and not now can I just make a note here because people agree on something does not make it truth would you agree in other words this morning we could talk about gravity and this whole half the room could completely disagree and not believe in gravity It would not make any difference if we traveled to the roof because you didn't believe in gravity and you jumped. The reality would be it's still there. The idea of the canon of them agreeing was trying to identify what was already truth, not because they agreed it was truth. So in your head, when you think about how we got our Bibles, it's not just because a bunch of men got together and said, that's truth, we deem it so. It was through a litany of tests and some conversations and working through much of the Scriptures this way. So this council basically came um, out of that with some divine-inspired uh, revealed writings that they said affirm themselves. Now, just a couple thoughts about that, and I have notes this morning because there's just they're so much on the tests of canonicity. Uh, in the Old Testament, the books, no, one of the major things that it had to have, authority from a lawgiver, a prophet, or a leader back in Israel. In other words, they had to self-affirm themselves and then books would cross over. A prophet would mention a king and another writing. And so you had to see this affirmation of this inspired writer's life and work. That's a very interesting note to make. Now when we say in the New Testament, for example, the same thing was true and so like you have Peter who is considered to be an apostle and affirmed, obviously, um, as Jesus' own words, but through the Gospels. But then he'll also affirm the writings of Mark and Paul and some of the writings of Luke. So you see that the Scriptures begin to um, self-support themselves in inspiration. What I mean by inspiration is God breathed, that God inspired them to write. Now another note is that there are other writings by some of these people that didn't make the Bible, a canon Bible. And so it doesn't make them less necessarily important, they're just not a part of the canon. And so there are other writings sourced for historical perspective, cultural perspective, or even insight. And uh, I read some of those, whether it's Josephus, and he wasn't an apostle, but he was a historian that writes much about culture in Israel. And we find ourselves, it's okay to read those. What we say, though, is the scripture is this inspired book um, given by God and affirmed over centuries. Now, just a couple of thoughts about manuscripts. Now, the Old Testament manuscript evidence comes out of three basic sources and a fourth that was affirming all those sources. One was the Septuagint, um, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the the Masoretic text, which is the Jewish Bible in Hebrew, and the Samaritan Pentateuch. These are the major sources until the major discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, you hear maybe about this a little bit, but again, I challenge you, if you're really interested in history, this is fascinating, and it's actually one of the places that I'm bummed in Israel we didn't see because it was closed. We got there like five minutes late. So when we go back again next year, by the way, if you're interested in going, we're going to hit the Qumran. But they have literally in each cave what they found and what writings they found. Those writings had uh, an importance because they gave us more copies of the Old Testament and specifically um, a thousand year span of writings and seeing the difference in the writings. In other words, if you wanted to see the legitimacy of a writing, if you wrote a letter... And a thousand years later, someone said, Well, that was the writing um, of Troy. And so you wanted to make sure it was that writing. If you found a copy, you wanted to see how close it was of that. And what they got to do is cross kind of look at those copies. And it really boils down to you'll read a little bit of a debate, but about three to four letters were different in basic spelling. I think one word was added just for um, an adjective to add a highlight, but that, that is amazing accuracy. And so we found 24 copies of Isaiah. But you see only a three-letter difference, all the multiple copies, the only book of the Old Testament that wasn't found was the book of Esther. Now, that's a lot for you to take in. I challenge you, go look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, not like physically, but you can, on the internet, obviously go look at that. Just It's a fascinating study and and look in what was found and affirmed, if you're a fact person. Now, in the New Testament, I think I mentioned this last week, there are so many manuscript copies of legitimizing the the New Testament, and far more than secular writings. Uh, In fact, of many of Shakespeare's original plays, we have far more copies of the New Testament affirming its legitimacy than we do Shakespeare himself. But look at... From Plato, there's only seven copies, um, and yet we would source Plato's writings. Um, Caesar himself, 10 copies. Tacitus, a historian that's, that's looked at today. Uh, Aristotle, 49 copies. Look at Homer the Iliad. Many of you read that, maybe in high school or college, 643. And then look at the difference in the New Testament copies, 5,600, not including Syriac, Latin, Coptic, Aramaic languages that gets over about 24,000. So, again, this morning, how we got our Bibles was not happens chance. Like, all of a sudden, hey, a bunch of people got together and said, okay, this is the holy book, and we're just deeming it so. Friends, this has not only legitimacy, but it is near proven inspiration by God, by its own writings, by its own prophetic um fulfillment by copies and manuscripts. It's a powerful piece. Now, so I'm gonna go through there. If you wanna to go to look more about how our Bibles were formed, it's, it's quite fascinating. I wanna answer a different question this morning um, and go kind of the second piece of this and that is what is truth? Now, this is where my wife was saying, like giving me the time out because I think I put her to sleep. And I really found I hit um, what it's called teacher's block. I've told some of you that, some of you know me better. I can study for 100 hours this week, but always Saturday night becomes like where it's the reshuffle and the new game plan. And uh, I was stumped last night because I thought, okay, this is so high-flying stuff about truth and the existence of truth, and it just gets so deep. I want to make a statement about truth and, and just a, uh, a differentiating concept that comes out of Scripture that sets it apart than any other holy writing. First, truth is invariable. What that means is truth does not move. I just told you about that gravity story. It doesn't matter what you believe about gravity, it's still there. It does not matter what people believe about truth, it doesn't make it any less true. Now we may disagree what truth is. Also, the reality that truth can't be what everybody else wants it to be. We can't all have different perceptions of truth and everybody's right. That's wrong. Now, we can debate on what truth is, but our debate and our decision on truth is not debatable. Does that make it sense? I just need a head shake, and maybe not a, like nodding out, just so that I know that he's putting me to sleep. Uh, okay, so what is truth? And the scripture's clear, and I know I've taught this before, and I know this polarizes some people. But I also want to make mention that it makes it free for what we call being Christ followers. Jesus will make a claim apart from any other claim in any other faith. And that is that he is the truth, the way to truth. Now, Tim Keller, again, I'm just going to refer to him because he does a great job on absolutism, exclusivity, um, literalism, where we can become a culture because of our religious power. Now, I want you to know, Protestants can become very abusive in pointing fingers and telling how non-truthful everybody else's faith is. When we find out who Christ is, there is a humility in confessing finding truth because we don't find right answers. You see, religion finds answers and truth to gain power and superiority. It's an imperialistic perspective. It means I leverage religious behavior to kind of place myself a little bit higher and a little bit more knowledgeable than you. The gospel, when I know Jesus, I feel so free because I can tell you how dumb I am up here, and yet I'm called to be up here, and because of Christ, I use the gifts I have. Finding that truth does not come by understanding a set of rules or moral code come for this book. It doesn't mean I become a theologian. It Doesn't mean become become the Bible answer man? Finding truth of what is truth is Jesus himself. This is, it is not an abstract idea. So truth doesn't become this concept of ideas or a set of kind of do good or rules. It becomes a person. And so God throughout the scripture will talk about, I'm truth, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 1.1 in the beginning was the Word, the Logos. It means He is this. So this becomes a special revelation of part of who God is, but not fully. We will never fully know who God is. His reveal of truth is what He chose to reveal to us. And so there's a caution that we don't treat this as kind of like a baseball bat of truth to everybody else. It is an introduction to the person of truth, and that is Jesus himself. I am the way, Jesus answered, the truth and the life. He doesn't see a way, a truth, a life. I'm the way. Now, this feels very, uh, some, in some circles, super exclusive, and it's hard to move around some of that feeling. But what I would say in the midst of where we live today is that there needs to be more Christians that are humbling approaching the gospel and living the gospel and loving people, no matter where they stand in their faith or their morality. There's way too much attention today in our culture, spent too much time in trying to point fingers at morality and governments and systems and beliefs when we ourselves need to allow the gospel to sink into our own lives and be the Christ followers to other people. What I love about this, it just reminds me, is that my understanding of truth comes through Christ, through knowing Him. It's a big difference. Read other faiths, read the Quran, read the Book of Mormon, and there is a measure of your own earning your way to some sort of Approval. And so this morning, when we gather, our gathering is not so that you get this transactional kind of appointment. And that's why, like, sorry, Troy, I haven't been at church for a few weeks. Well, this is not like some download, plug everybody in and get a little bit more information. We gather in relationship. We're called the church. And in relationship, we're a spiritual family, and we long to sing about this Jesus who is the truth. And we long to talk about him. And we long to be reminded about him in the midst of our suffering and adversity. And we are called the local body of Christ in the church. And we support one another despite our brokenness and sin. And we can learn how to forgive one another in the midst of our, our unfaithfulness to God and hurting one another. Do you see that picture? That's what we're called to be and do. And so we get a chance to represent truth. That God begins to, to pour truth out of our own lives, not because of what we know. The question I want to answer so then is how do we know truth? How can we know truth? How how do we begin? Because often I'll hear people say, Troy, could you come and, and meet with me or my family and convince them to Christ? I can't. Because you're gonna find here in a moment, we don't convince people into the kingdom. It is not a set of facts. So how do we find the truth? Favorite passage of mine, I've probably used it way too much, but I keep using it because it just speaks so clear to me. Jesus answering to the Jews who knew it all, who knew the Old Testament scriptures, who knew all that. Remember the road to Emmaus. They had grown up that way. They had read the scriptures, knew the prophets. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching... You are really then my disciples. It says, then you will know the truth and the truth truth will set you free. Three things. First, there's an assumption here that those who had believed him would follow him. That's our first real point of trying to find truth, is that you acknowledge who you're going to follow and you follow. You see, for me to follow somebody, I have to either it legitimizes, are they worth following, right? If you're gonna follow somebody, unless you're kind of a stalker on Facebook, but you're gonna you're gonna follow somebody physically with your life, is that's what it's it's implying here. Belief doesn't just mean intellectually, it means I'm going to give my life to follow after you and be a disciple. Be a Talmudim is the word is. That means I'm going to follow you. That assumes I acknowledge who you are and what you've done. I acknowledge your claim to being the way, the truth, and the life. I acknowledge that I'm going to follow you. This takes an amount of what? Faith. You're going to find here, because he doesn't say, sit down and let me explain all the facts so that you feel the freedom then to choose to follow me. He says, I want you to follow, acknowledge and follow. Jesus, in Matthew 18, says, unless you become like one of these, you cannot be my disciple. You remember that? Who's he talking about? Little children. He points to little children. He says, unless you become like one of these. Essentially, the basics of being a Christ follower in today that far exceeds anything that religion can bring is that we're called into a relationship to follow Jesus and acknowledge his claim. And that's why all of us can come. No matter what we know or don't know about God, all we are to affirm is His claim that He came fully human, sinless, and lived this life, died on a cross, and rose again for you. He was tortured unjustly for you. He took the greatest amount of abuse that this world could offer for you and I. How do we know truth? We acknowledge who He is, And we follow him. Uh, The second part of this says, then you will know the truth. Second point here is, how do we know? We acknowledge and follow, but knowing comes by following. We begin to know Christ. Not just know facts. Sometimes this can become such, again, a weapon uh, of abuse in our culture today, and, and even in our church. When this is used as a book of morality and and facts for somebody, you miss the perspective because it's about the death and resurrection of Christ and the call is to follow Him so that you know Him. And when you know Him, He begins to change you and you begin to know more about Him and know not just intellectually, but you know Him this way. My wife always makes fun of all my Facebook friends. I think I'm up to 2,000. And she says, they're not your friends. Well, I say I know them. Yeah. It's a very different no, right? Because no means I might know of them, shook their hand, or know their name, right? And I just push accept, and it doesn't matter to me. It's like a big phone book. <laughs> Sorry, some of you really thought I was posting and, like, really excited about it. Facebook's a kind of an interesting experiment. knowing him far exceeds just an intellectual kind of i know of jesus it means that knowing like i speak about knowing my wife or intimate friendships if how do we know the truth we have to first acknowledge who jesus is and then begin to follow him and then we need to recognize that our relationship will deepen as we continue to trust him in all of our lives friends Do not take this book and cut it up. I'll never forget talking to a couple who were living together and wanted to um, get married. And I always ask couples that, by the way, when they come into my office. Why do you want to get married? They look at each other like, who is this dude? But it's funny. Most people, don't. I don't know. We're supposed to? Why do you want a pastor? You don't need a pastor to marry you. Just go down to the justice, justice of the peace. Most people don't understand the basics of why they need to get married. Don't cut out sections of this Bible and choose to follow some of it. Jesus is saying, "Follow me." That means follow the whole of truth. That means follow all of His revelation of He's giving it to you. This story, this beautiful book. And so the last part of this says to us, uh, "Read there." To the Jews who believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you're real, my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. Too many times I've heard people say, I don't want to be a Christian because it's limiting and you're restricted, and what a boring life. And I actually thought that in the first part of my faith. Friends, you are set free when you recognize that you are not to earn any longer. That the cross, the cross, and the resurrection give you freedom. It doesn't give you permission to live a sinful life. If anything, you're so overwhelmed that the debt was paid that you no longer want to live that way and you want to follow Him. And so, what we find is that truth brings freedom as we follow Jesus and know Him more deeply. He reveals to us truth, and let me illustrate. So there has been times where I have, you know, one of the parts of the Bible that you don't really like, and many of you probably don't, is the idea you're supposed to forgive everyone. There is no place in the Bible where it says, like a subnote, only if they did these things do you have to not forgive them. You know, you can, you have permission. This is everyone. That means the murderers, the rapists, every every horrible thing that could ever be done to you, you're to forgive them. That that to me is amazing to think about. And if I say that this morning, there's probably that gritting the teeth. If I'm committed to loving Jesus and I'm committed to following Him in faith, I don't understand forgiveness, nor do I have the ability to forgive some people, yet I can tell you there's been times in my life because I love him so much and recognize that he forgived me. He forgave me. I've gone and don't understand what it's going to do, and I work through that process of forgiving somebody, and it transformed me. It freed me. It was the most like, whoa, I get it. I get it. And so this book doesn't become a set of rules to follow. It becomes a way to live a life. And it says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have life when I follow him. And when I am given the power to be able to forgive people and to live in purity and to live in holiness, those things are giving me freedom and wholeness in my life. That's why every week, this is not about a performance or a transaction that you get here and download. This is about a relationship with truth. And that is Jesus himself. And God chose to reveal to us a story about himself. This amazing story that points to his son, Jesus Christ. That is why we gather. That is why we are reminded of that hope. I want to finish this this morning and send us to the crosses this morning with Psalms 25.5. It says, lead me in your truth and teach me. It's probably the prayer that we could all say this morning as we're standing at the crosses, but maybe even before you go to the cross this morning and take communion, you're reminded of the, of the blood and the body of Christ broken for you. You know the scripture in the Old Testament will mention that the nation of Israel were like prostitutes whoring for other things other than God. Friends, that's just not pointing to Israel. It's how we live. And might we recognize this morning our prayer of God, lead me to truth, which is you. It's your son. It's not a set of information or a set of holy rules. It's you. Teach me. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I wait all the day long. Might we this morning be a church body that returns to relationship and runs away from religion? Father, this morning as we go to the cross, could you help us, in the midst of our own flesh and sinful hearts and minds, move away from religion and move towards truth, which is relationship with your son, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.